Chapter Twenty Eight of Trail's End by George W. Ogden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sunset. Evening saw the fires of Ascalon subdued and confined. With the falling of the wind, the danger of the disaster spreading to embrace the entire town decreased almost to safety, although the wary scorched townsmen stood watch over the smouldering coals which lay deep where the principal part of Ascalon lately stood. Fred Stilwell had been taken to Judge Thayer's house, where his mother and Violet attended him. The doctor said youth and a clean body would carry him through. As for Drum, whose bullet had brought the young man down, his horse with the black saddle roll had stood hitched to Judge Thayer's fence until evening, when the sheriff came with a writ of attachment in Stilwell's favor and took it away. Drum's body was lying on a board in the calaboose, diverted for that dark day in Ascalon's history into a morgue. The sheriff reported that the Texas cattleman had carried more than $50,000 in currency behind his saddle. That was according to the custom of the times and usage of the range, where many a man's word was as good as his bond, but no man's check was as good as money. Tom Conboy was already hiring carpenters to rebuild the hotel, his eye full of the business that would come to his doors when the railroad shops were running, and the trainmen of the division point were there to be housed and fed. Dora and Riley had been wandering around town all afternoon, very much like two pigeons looking for a place to nest. And so evening found peace in Ascalon after all its tragedy and pain. Calvin Morgan and Rita Thayer stood at the bank corner at sunset, looking down the square where the great gap in its front made the scene unfamiliar. Morgan's disabled hand was bandaged. There was a cross of surgical tape on his chin, closing a deep cut where some citizen had tapped him with a revolver in that last fight of that tumultuous day. Little groups of desolate, disheartened people stood along the line of hitching racks, dead coals, which the wind had sown as living fire over the square littered the white dust. Morgan had taken off his badge of office, having made a formal resignation to Judge Thayer, mayor of the town. Nobody had been sworn in to take his place, for, as Judge Thayer had said, it did not appear as if any further calamity could be left in store among the misfortunes for that town, except it might be an earthquake or a cyclone, and a city marshal, even Morgan, could not fend against them if they were to come. "'You have trampled your place among the thorns,' said Rita. "'It looks like I've pulled a good deal down with me,' he returned, viewing the seat of fire with a softening pity in his grave face. "'All that deserves to rise will rise again,' she said in confidence. "'It's a good thing it burned.' It's purged of its old shame and old monuments of corruption. I'm glad it's gone. There was a quiet over the place, as if the heart of turbulence had been broken and its spirit had taken flight. In the southwest, in the face of the two watchers, at the margin of this ruin, a vast dark cloud stood like a landfall rising in the mariner's eye out of the sea. It had been visible since four o'clock seeming to hesitate as if nature intended again to deny this parched and suffering land 
the consolation of rain. Now it was rising. Already it had overspread the sunset glow, casting a cool shadow full of promise over the thirsting prairie wastes. It will rain this time, Rita prophesied. It always comes up slowly that way when it rains a long time. A rain will work wonders in this country, he said, his face lifted to the promise of the cloud. And wisdom and faith will do more, she told him, her voice tender and low. And love, said he, voice solemn as a prophet's, yet gentle as a dove's. And love, she whispered, the wind, springing like an inspiration before the rain, lifting her shadowy hair. Joe Lynch came driving into the stricken square, down the road beside them, bringing a load of bones. Had to burn the town to fetch a rain, huh? said Joe, his ghostly dry old face tilted to catch the savor of the wind. So saying, he drove on and paused not in his labor of off-bearing the waste, the failure that must be cleared for the new labor of wisdom, faith, and love. Thirty years will do for cottonwood what two centuries will do for an oak. Thirty years had built the cottonwoods of great girth and lifted them in dignity high above the roof of Calvin Morgan's white farmhouse, its great barns and granaries, elm trees bringing their blessings of wide-spreading branches more slowly, led down a broad avenue to the white manse with its Ionian portico. Over the acres of smooth, luxuriant green lawn, the long shadows of closing day reached like the yearning of men's unfinished dreams. Before the house, a broad roadway, smooth as a city boulevard, ran straight to the bright, clean, populous city where Ascalon, with its forgotten shame and tragedies, once stood, and far and away, over the swell of a gentle ridge, into the dip of a gracious valley, spread the benediction of growing wheat. Wisdom and faith and love had worked their miracle. The land had become the nation's granary. It was a land redeemed. Under the giant cottonwoods, gray-green of leaf as the desert grasses were gray-green in the old cattle days, the brown walls, the low roof of a sod house stood. The lawns clipped smooth around its humble door, lilac clumps green beside its walls. Sweet honeysuckle clambered over its little porch, and there came, in the tender last beams of the setting sun, a man and a woman to its door. Not old, not bent, not gnarled by the rack of blind groping, undirected toil. For such of the chosen out of nature's nobility are never old. Hair once dark as woodland shadows was shot with the sunlight of many years. Hair once bright as the mica tossed by joyous waves upon a sunny beach was whitened now by the unmelting snows of winters numbered swiftly in the brief calendar of man but shoulders were unbent by the burdens which they had borne joyously and their feet went quickly as lovers to a tryst this little sod house stood with all its old-time furnishings like a shrine and on this day which seemed to be an anniversary it had been brightened with vases of flowers. This man and this woman, not old indeed, entered and stood within its door, where the light was dimming through the little window high in the thick wall. The man crossed the room and stood 
where a belt with holsters hung upon the wall. She drew near him and lifted his great hand and nestled it against her cheek. Old Seth Craddock's guns, he said, musing as on a recurring memory. His guns, she murmured, drawing closer into the shadow of his strength. End of chapter 28 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas End of Trails End by George W. Ogden